Hey everybody, welcome back to the Finding Fulfillment Podcast by Self-Improvement. I'm your host, Blake Reichenbach. I'm not a fan of wasting time or spreading bad advice, so let's just get to it and dive into some powerful conversations with amazing people as we figure out what it looks like to build your ideal life, be a bit happier each day, and, oh, right, find fulfillment. Let's go! Hey, Carrie, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing really well. I am so excited to have you here today. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much. When we were first speaking with each other, I didn't realize how many similarities there were kind of in our backgrounds of like coming out (laughs) of this tech world and then, you know, transitioning and moving into coaching and personal development and helping people just live better lives. Yes, absolutely. I thought that was really funny too. So yeah, we both have like that heavy corporate technology background. And, you know, on the surface, there are a lot of stereotypes about people in tech that aren't necessarily aligned with the stereotypes about people who are also experts in a field like meditation, which is why I've brought you here today. That's absolutely true. In fact, it's kind of funny because in reality, you would think they would be very aligned because meditation is so much about focus and clarity and you really have to have that to be in technology, but we don't necessarily see it that way. Yeah. And being on the inside of tech, I think that there probably is like some alignment there under the surface, but I think it gets hidden so much by like industry jargon and the constant change and updates of the tech world that we never really like dive into those aspects of people in tech. That's absolutely true. Yes. But it was really interesting. Like I I think I heard the statistic, Tim Ferriss was talking about how many of the most successful people and many of the people that he's interviewed were successful in technology about 80% of them had some sort of meditation practice. And that statistic blew me away because you don't really hear about it that often. Yeah, it's simultaneously really surprising that it's that significant, but it's also not surprising at all because meditation's just really cool. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and the other interesting thing about it is I think people in technology really lean heavily on that logical side of their brains. And meditation is kind of considered very esoteric and something that, you know, even is a little bit woo. So I think it doesn't really get talked about that often. Absolutely. And that for folks who are listening in, that is the exact reason why Carrie is here. Carrie is brilliant at demystifying the mystical. And so today we're going to be diving into meditation and talking a bit about some of the complexities of meditation as it exists today. Not necessarily the practice itself, but how it gets thrown around and applied and a lot of stuff is left up in the air without any real clear path forward or resolution. And Carrie is, we we were talking about this a little bit earlier before we started the podcast. And in the first 10 minutes of speaking with Carrie, I feel like I already learned an added layer of depth to my own (laughs) meditation knowledge. So I think this is going to be really, really great. Awesome. (laughs) Well, I'm excited to do it, Blake. (laughs) So before we 
dive like straight into the nitty gritty details of meditation. Can you just tell us a little bit about how you came into contact with meditation? Yeah, that is actually a funny story and I'll tell the short version. When I was in high school, they asked us to write a comparative religion paper and everybody else was like, oh, I'm going to do mine on being a Baptist versus being a Lutheran or being a Catholic versus, you know, something else. And so I decided to be super weird and out there. And I wrote my paper on the two things that I thought would be the most out there was Buddhism and Egyptian mythology. And so I had to compare and contrast these two. And in the process uh, of reading about Buddhism, I felt like, oh, this is what I believe. This is my thing. And, and so I just set the intention back in, you know, what, 1989. Oh, I am one day going to become a Buddhist. I'll eventually have to meet a teacher. And that's how it's apparently done. And so I just assumed that that's sometime what would happen. And so I really did in 1998, meet someone who was a meditation teacher. And that's how I got started. He said, do you want to learn to meditate? And I said, sure, let's do it. That is amazing. I absolutely love that. (laughs) It was crazy that it even happened that way, because I, that's not usually how things happen. And it was, it was, it was an American Buddhist teacher. We ended up in a relationship later. And so it was a really like unconventional way of coming to that practice. It's really cool that it just kind of clicked for you that you were doing your research for this school project and you were like, you know what, actually, actually, (laughs) let's explore that. (laughs) Yes, especially being a Methodist and having grown up in the church and always just feeling I was I was really lucky that I had a Sunday school background that was extremely open and they talked to us a lot about concepts that that weren't always accepted in the South, in the Bible Belt. They talked to us a lot about like the apocryphal books in the Bible and all of these things that that were kind of fringy concepts so that we had a full understanding. And so it really allowed me to be a lot more open in bringing things into my experience. That That's really cool. And that's really great to hear. I was curious, you know, also having been raised a Southerner, I, I, I didn't want to bring it up in case there is any, you know, trauma to work through or anything <laughs> like that. But thinking about like, being in the South as a young person, doing this research and saying, you know what, actually, Buddhism, let's explore this. I feel like it's so amazing that you had that openness and you had that curiosity and it wasn't like shut down. (laughs) (laughs) Or a rebellious streak. (laughs) Right, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) A little bit, yeah. Um, And I I think it just because I, I had already, like being a curious person had was always curious about those other things anyway. So I wanted to learn something that was outside of my experience, that was far outside of my experience. And, and it was really kind of a shock. And I think, you know, like I was set up for that experience because one of my really earliest memories with religion was around the time I was four or five years old. And we had one of those little golden books on the Bible and I'm reading this book and it says, when you die, you're going to go to heaven and you're going to stay there forever. And (laughs) like horrified at this idea. I felt sick for like two days. I was so horrified at the idea that you were going to go somewhere and you were going to stay there forever. And so like that Buddhism really had a totally different take on that. And that really appealed to me that, that there was more flexibility in your consciousness. There was more that might be going on. There was more that, that you might experience. 
and that appealed to me. And that's kind of why I went that direction. And now, you know, that I have this really robust education in both disciplines, I, I see a lot of the similarities and where they sort of flex and flow together. And, and there's a lot of openness that allows those traditions to intermix. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting kind of seeing how that thread has grown with you from like this first exposure in a school project to being <laughs> a, you know, an engineer in the tech world. And now you're in a position where you are helping people, you know, to oversimplify it, get out of their own way and oh, to yes. unlock their full <laughs> potential. Tell us a little bit more about that. So uh, the way I came into what I'm doing now was, was kind of roundabout, but it was really in the process of trying to discover what I wanted after I left technology. So my last role at Microsoft was about five years ago. And I knew at that time that I was really unhappy with what I had been doing. And, and I was, you know, like hitting just over 40. And, and this is, I think, a thing that's very common for people who get into their 40s is suddenly you realize you don't have all the time in the world. And so you have to get serious about what it is that you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. And are you really doing what you want to be for the rest of your life? And I realized I wasn't. And so I start experimenting and peeling back the layers and figuring out like, why was I doing those things? What do I really want to be doing? And, and I knew that I wanted to be doing something that was more creative, where I had more impact and control and ability to innovate. So I was working on a startup and in the process, I was in a um, women's workspace. And this was really my first time being around a lot of women after being in a very male dominated career. And I was, I was really happy working around men because there was a lot of things that I appreciated about that. And there were things that I feared about working with women. And it, but, but when I was with these women who were entrepreneurs who were extremely uh, ambitious and really open and wanted to innovate and who wanted to collaborate, like this was a whole new world for me. And, and they were asking for coaching because I had all of this business experience. And so, you know, what we know is like being someone who was a back office software developer, it, who also build databases, like my job was to go into a company and kind of like you're pulling the guts out, putting things back together, rebuilding teams and changing the processes and moving forward. And so that really set me up with a lot of knowledge about how businesses run to help these people who often didn't have any of that experience. And so just kind of help them get off on the right foot. And so I built a membership primarily for women who were new entrepreneurs. And what I learned in that process was that the, the limitations that they felt like they had, the things that they were stumbling over, that, that you know, funnel that they felt like they had to build because it was so complicated, the you know, evergreen programs that they felt like they had to have because they just couldn't interact with customers. Like these things all had a mindset basis behind it. So when we started to peel away of why do you think you need to spend your money on that? Why do you think you need to do that complicated thing? It was because they were afraid or because they weren't feeling confident about their skills. And so really these were mindset issues and that, that required me to draw on this entirely different set of skills that I had from being a, a Buddhist meditator and a person who was really focused on mindset for that same time span, that same 20 years. And this was really where we were getting the impact and the change. And, you know, I think that's another really great example of how these worlds just collide and, and they feed off of each other so well, yeah. because, you know, the, the startup world 
can feel really cutthroat in a lot of ways. It can be very, very high pressure. There's yes. such a barrier to entry, especially for women when they're going mm -hmm. into like male dominated spaces or, you know, just that added pressure of like, oh, you have to, you know, display this certain model of femininity while also doing all this yes. other hullabaloo. So that is so, so cool that you're able to just kind of step in and say, I've been nurturing this amazing skill since I had a comparative research assignment. Let's go. <laughs> For real. And, and it was really like that journey, I think is as rich, really probably more rich than, than my business life, because, you know, behind the scenes, I wasn't just, you know, like, Hey, I read a book on meditation and I had some classes, like I'm a meditator now. Like I had, you know, this first teacher that was in my relationship that lasted about five years. And then I was, in that relationship exposed to so many extremely high lamas. So in, in Tibetan Buddhism, like your, your highest teachers are called who would come into our home and would teach and we would help bring those teachings to the masses in San Diego. And, and so I got like really close contact with them and to understand like how they lived and the way they were in real life. And then also went on to study with a very prominent Western Buddhist Tibetan teacher in the United States as a close student, and then ran the Seattle Sangha for her, which is kind of like the group. And really feeling like, like that was my trajectory, that at some point I was going to be a Tibetan Buddhist teacher. And at one point I had asked her, can we start teaching just basic meditation classes in Seattle? Because there was one practice we were authorized to practice and we could not bring in new people. And she said that she wanted to bring someone else in to do that. And that was the point at which I kind of like had this minor collapse with Tibetan Buddhism. I was like, I don't know that I'm going to be able to teach in this tradition. And so I kind of pulled away for a little while to try to figure out like what I wanted. And this was around the same time that my career thing was happening. And so now realizing that I'm kind of moving in that direction again, with a totally different and expanded set of skills, because now I've brought in all this information about energy healing meditations and starting to look at other traditions and sort of widen that scope has really brought so much more to it that, that I really had kind of been blocking out before. Awesome. And so I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about like, what does your meditation practice look like in, in your life? And of course, you don't have to go into like the nitty gritty details yeah. of, you know, anything super personal. I'm just curious, like, how does that manifest itself for you today? So because I'm someone who has a very extensive meditation background, I kind of have a, a quiver of options that I keep. So I know that there are meditations that I can do that are very traditional that will help bring me focus. And I also have some tools in my toolkit there that are more, you know, like stray all the way over into energy healing. There are some visualizations I do. What I do try to do is meditate every day. And I think that's the most important part of the practice for me, because I see a massive difference in my mindset if I'm meditating every day, or if I, you know, start to skip a few days, I can start to feel it, it. To me, it feels like the wheels coming off to everyone else. It would probably feel just normal, but I know what it feels like to kind of keep myself in that higher state and to keep my mind more clear. And so when I'm not doing it, I really feel it. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, one of the things that I, I've heard you saying, and I'm curious if you can kind of clarify this for our listeners a little bit is when you speak about meditating, you refer to having meditations 
plural. Yes. And I think a lot of people think meditation, like there's this one blanket concept of meditation. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So there are a variety of meditations that people are referring to when, when you hear this. And so I think if you have a little bit of a basis of what each of those do, uh, it makes it a lot easier to sort of choose one. So in Buddhism, you will almost always start with what's called a sh shamatha meditation or shamatha. And some people will say, and this is usually just calming your mind. So this is a calming meditation. They will usually involve watching the breath. You're mostly trying to pull your focus in and watch your mind. And so this is really like the origin of mindfulness. So you'll hear a lot of psychologists also talk about the importance of mindfulness and like, and I'll, I'll have to take an aside to say like how important mindfulness practice was to my overall spiritual journey and just like, like getting a hold of myself and having that understanding because as a person who was probably baseline, extremely anxious, tending towards the neurotic. And I think a lot of people who are very intelligent are also tend to be very neurotic. Like they're, they, they sort of take their problem solving minds and they turn them on themselves. And so this, this can be a real issue. Mindfulness was the process of watching your thoughts, really just paying attention to, especially if you have an emotional reaction, watching what prompted it. And that was, that opened up like a whole world for me because every time I was having an emotion, I could, I can still to this day, like track back the last 10 thoughts I had before that emotional reaction. And so like that initial meditation process is teaching you to be mindful, watch the thoughts, observe them and not get caught up in them. And so that's usually kind of the basis for meditation. When we talk about people are saying, just meditate. That said, it can be an extremely frustrating meditation for new meditators, especially if they think that the goal is to stop thinking because we can't stop thinking. We can slow our thoughts, we can observe our thoughts, we can let thoughts go, but we're not really like the, the nature of the mind is to generate thoughts. That's just what it does. But this can be maddening to people when they first sit down to do it. Like, oh, they're just going crazy. I can't get it to stop. So that's a good starting point for a lot of people. I do not recommend to people who are first starting to, if they have any anxiety or breathing issues, to start with a meditation that focuses on the breath. Mm because this for a lot of people can actually bring up anxiety. Like they, they start becoming anxious about not being able to, to just breathe without controlling it. And that puts them into a minor panic and they start to hyperventilate. And that is exactly what happened to me when I first started. And I was like, I hate this and I don't want to do it again. <laughs> so lucky for me, I had a teacher who could redirect me into a different type of meditation, but for a lot of people like that could be the end. So, so that was like an important starting point, but usually from that type of meditation, they move into, in Buddhism, you move into what's called um, Vipassana. And this is clarity meditation where you're, you're really, really, really sharpening your focus and sharpening your senses and bringing everything to bear. And so from there, like when you look at all the meditations that are out there and available, you can start to recognize these. So like these meditations that are kind of a good starting point are like relaxing, calming meditations. These will kind of calm us down and settle us down and sort of settle our minds. And then you have these intensive focus meditations. And these are very, very different because when you're doing a focusing meditation, these are great for people who have ADHD, 
or really struggle trying to pull everything together. Or even if that, you know, you meet those people who are kind of spacey and they're in their consciousness sort of fanned out and they have difficulty kind of pulling themselves together to even be present. The Vipassana style meditation and meditations that require intense focus are really good for them to train their minds in such a way that that is a remedy for that issue. So that's a couple of different kinds. But for me, there, there are a few more that are really, really essential for the people that I run across. Okay. One um, is meditations that are expansive. So there's sometimes you're, you're doing a meditation and they might give you instructions to sort of like pretend your body is expanding or pretend your consciousness is expanding in all directions. In Tibetan Buddhism, there was one that we did that was like sky mind, like you're sort of expanding your mind in the sky. This is really great for people who are feeling a lot of personal limitation, feeling a lot of self-confidence issues, or they tend to be entirely too analytical, too sharp, and not, not able to let go of things. So these expansive meditations are really great as a, as a remedy for that sort of, or just even a balance for that sort of state. And then I would say there are a couple more that are really important. One are like clearing meditations. And these are often for people like either they're having health issues or they're struggling with letting go of something. Sometimes these are traumas. And this, you know, strays more over into energy healing style meditations where really, you know, we're trying to let go of something. And then there are grounding meditations. And these are definitely good for people who have had family trauma or any other kind of trauma, like really feeling like, because there tends to be a dissociation from the body, a dissociation from the world. And so like really feeling the body you know, grounding into the ground, like these ones where we feel solid and whole again. Yeah, that is such a, I, I think that that's such like an under-discussed aspect of meditation, that it has these different facets, these different meditations, plural, that explore and lean into different aspects of, of, of being human. Yeah. And, you know, I, as a point of curiosity before this, I just went to Google and I typed in the word meditation. And for people who have, you know, read my site or tuned into my podcast before, they probably know that I could talk at length about Google and how search algorithms work because SEO is what I do for my day job. Yeah. Ignoring those details, which I'm sure some of my fellow SEOs will scold me for doing, but ignoring those details, a simple Google search of meditation comes up with 424 million God. results. Unbelievable. 424 million results. That's a lot. And That's massive. As, as someone who you know, receive like that mentorship, that one-on-one -on -one guidance to help demystify meditation and especially to get you past that first stage of thinking like, oh, I feel like I'm panicking. This is not for me. I'm curious, what would you advise to someone who's wanting to begin a mindfulness practice or to feel more grounded in their body? What would you recommend as a starting point there? so that they don't go to Google, see those 424 million results and just feel, oh my gosh, this is too much. I, I have analysis paralysis and can't get started. Yeah, totally. I think that the when we talked about like mindfulness and just having that relaxing meditation is, is often a good place to start. But I think it's also important to kind of look at like, 
if we know our primary learning styles, that's another great place to start. So if you know that you are a visual learner, watching a video and or watching a video that will engage your eyes is very helpful. Or in the case of how I started, one of the things we did is had like a little marble or something shiny to focus on where you're sort of pulling when you're, when your eyes are engaged or on something that keeps them still and focused, it really allows your, you to see what's happening in your mind more easily because you don't have the visual distraction. Now, some people say, close your eyes, but what, what happens there is immediately the mind starts generating pictures. And so now we're engaged in the pictures of what's happening behind our eyes. And, and so like having something that, that completely pulls us in, you know, sometimes those are yantra meditations with a Y that sort of pull the eye to a center point, but even just having something bright and shiny to look at and hold your focus there so that you can watch your mind is helpful. If somebody is really heavily auditory, then listening to a guided meditation is very helpful or even listening to mantra or being engaged with mantra, like where we're sort of saying the same thing again and again, helps put people in a state that is meditative. Now, then I think there's a really important distinction here because we hear often like there are mindfulness meditations where we are watching our minds and then there are trance meditations and these are very very different so um, when we start getting into mantra and sometimes like yantra if you're watching something that looks like an optical illusion moving like that's sort of moving you into trance and trances are really really great for helping us get outside of our ego consciousness so all the limitations that get brought all the, the things we're afraid of, the things we think we can't get past, like trance kind of is a doorway into seeing past that. And this is why I think people think of meditation sometimes as esoteric, because no matter what kind of meditation you're doing, eventually you can sort of get to insights that feel like were not available to you before. They were outside of the what feels like the realm of the conscious mind. But really what's happening is we're letting the ego release a little bit. So it's not so scared. So it's not protecting us and creating all these blind spots. So trance type meditations are good for this. And these are like visualizations, you know, guided meditations that sort of take you on a journey. These are ones where you're listening to mantras and kind of getting into this zone because it allows the brain to relax completely and, and allow some new things in. Maybe things that have been trying to get through that you yourself have been trying to help and, and they weren't getting through. So that is a totally different type, but also very useful. And this is extremely useful for people who are anxious, hyper-analytical, and tend to self-sabotage. And, you know, I think that's a really good call out and a really good distinction about these differences between like a mindfulness meditation and a more trans-focused meditation. Because I think, you know, in my own experiences with becoming acquainted with meditation, I found myself early on looking for those mindfulness exercises and mm -hmm. stumbling into resources that were more transcendental based and mm -hmm. trans oriented and feeling like, oh, how, how do I, what? This is completely <laughs> new territory. What's going on? And I think that that's a pretty common stumbling block for people who are, you know, maybe just wanting to feel a little bit more at peace throughout their day or wanting to feel a bit more in control of their thoughts mm -hmm. while they're working. 
Yeah. And, and both will accomplish that. I think that where, where we start to stray into something that's not really helpful is when people are constantly looking for, I'm not going to say mystical experiences outside of themselves, but, but starting to, to hyper-focus on what's out there in the beyond. And, you know, can I, you know, get to these other states? You can, but ultimately like, it doesn't, it doesn't so much matter. Like the, the filter that you're working with all the time is your own subconscious, your own perception, your own ego. Like these are the, the, the filter that everything is going to pass through. And so like the, the objectivity of what's going on outside of whether or not you're, you know, reaching great consciousness or you're like calling in guides and all of this other stuff isn't really essential because this is what you have to work with. And so getting your subconscious to kind of loosen up, getting your ego to kind of loosen up allows you to to do so many things that you didn't think you were capable of doing before. And it also allows you to be more peaceful about what is happening. It sort of just kind of loosens up the grip that's happening. And that can happen both with these insight meditations and the mindfulness meditations, and it can happen with trans meditations. It really just depends on like what kind of thing you've already got going on. You know, people who, you know, don't have a lot of trauma who are pretty, you know, like, they, they feel like they just want a little more of a boost sitting and being still and having clarity and insight will give them a lot more energy. It also just gives a buffer. And, you know, that's an interesting thing about like understanding how anxiety works and, and, you know, to some de- degree depression, because insight and, and clarity meditations can be very good for depression. Cause you think, of, think about what does depression feel like? It feels like everything sort of fans out and feels just kind of heavy and gross. Right. So when you when you bring yourself to this point and you bring bright clarity and you're really focusing all of your senses, you're sort of pushing back against that feeling and cultivating a different way of your brain working with a lot of energy. I mean, you really like are pulling your energy together to do this. Whereas if you're very anxious, what's happened is it's like there's a high water line with anxiety. And so like your baseline stress is high. So doing something that sort of brings the baseline stress down and engages that parasympathetic nervous system to kind of just bring it all down, lowers that high water line so that you're less likely to flip over into panic. And, you know, I think that, that aspect of allowing yourself to develop a sense of insight and have that moment of stillness is so undervalued. It is so, so helpful. And, you know, I, when I'm working with either coaching clients or, you know, even just in my writing that I do on the self-improvement website, one of the things that I always kind of come back to is, you know, when you are in these either hyper-stimulated or just high-stress situations, especially for people who maybe haven't yet dipped their toes into developing a meditation routine, one of the best things that I advise people to do is get a journal like get a $1 notebook and an ink pen and give yourself some time to just reflect and say, here's what I'm feeling. Here's what this feels like in my body. Here's, you know, what this experience is like as these emotions are becoming less intense and just getting that sense of awareness of like, I'm not the sum of this insane experience (laughs) that I feel right now. Instead, this is all connected. This is something that will ebb and flow and that I can monitor and just notice. Yes. 
and so I, I really, really love that distinction that you made about, you know, people being able to just create that stillness and that moment of, I'm not going to say, you know, mental quiet, because like you mentioned, our, our minds don't really quiet themselves, but it's a moment <laughs> of peacefulness and space. Yeah. And, and we can get to long moments of mental quiet. It just takes a while, you know, for experienced meditators, those spaces between the thoughts can get longer and longer. And, and it's not that that is an end in and of itself. Really what we're looking for is having mastery over the mind instead of being run by the mind. That's really the objective of especially Buddhist meditation is, is having that, that mastery over yourself. And, you know, and that's a, that's a fantastic objective in and of itself. I think the key is for new meditators is start with something that doesn't make you feel too frustrated. That's already kind of going with your flow. And I really wanted to say something about journaling, because I think this is an aspect that that people often sort of gloss over, like they, why, why journal? Why should I journal? What should I put in journal? But what journaling really does is it allows us to make the, the problem that sort of seems big and large and squishy and amorphous and to draw it all the way down into something finite and to give it shape and form. And once we had, it has some boundaries around it, like we can manage it. But this is, you know, part of the issue with our minds and, you know, and even the ego spaces, it sort of like pushes something inside and says, that's like some big, scary monster. And it looks really, really big because you're not looking at it. And, you know, and so when you bring it into a journal, you have something specific to work with. And then again, you can bring that into your meditations of, you know, what is the remedy for that thing, that feeling that is now finite and you have something to work with. You are speaking my language right now. <laughs> I... Uh, often refer to myself as like a journaling fanboy or like a, a, a <laughs> journaling evangelist because it, it's yeah. exactly that. You know, you take something that can feel nebulous and overwhelming and suddenly it has form. It has yes. a structure that you can see, you can analyze, you can ask yourself why a couple of times and peel back those layers. So like, yeah, that is, you're speaking my <laughs> language, you're singing my song. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, amazing. I love it. One, one of the things you also said there that I want to touch on just really quickly is kind of a final point and almost a call to action before we start to wrap up is, you know, you mentioned, you know, finding a meditation that fits. And so I'm curious, like, for someone who is new to meditation, maybe doesn't have access or doesn't feel like they have access to a mentor, what are some ways that they can go about finding a meditation that fits. I, I think YouTube is a great place to start. And there are also like some really popular apps. So we know that Calm is extremely popular. Headspace is extremely popular. And just sort of experimenting and listening to the meditation partway through to just kind of get an idea of, does, is this an expanding meditation? Is this a focusing meditation? Like what, what is the anatomy of this meditation and, and does it feel like it'll work for me? But guided meditations are all, also a really good place for people who are um, feeling frustrated and like they're working against themselves too much because they allow the brain to just sort of rest while someone else is doing the talking and you follow along. So there are probably like a billion meditations on YouTube, <laughs> but, but, but finding someone that you like listening to is helpful. Like their message sort of speaks to you in a way that helps you feel open and like you can follow along. If, if you run across a meditation that creates friction, it's, it's not the right one. Like just move on to something else because really what you're looking for is to put your mind and body in, 
in a calm enough state that you can follow along. And, and so they're, they're out there, they're everywhere. And, you know, those apps, videos are really great place to start. It's a little harder to start from a meditation in a book, but it can be done. And if you find that following those basic instructions is really, really helpful, you know, that's great. Some people want, I think, as you mentioned earlier in our earlier talk, like some people want to do a lot of research. That's also fine. Like that really like opens some people up and lets them feel like, oh, I've, you know, I understand this process, but the, it is experiential. Like we can't, we can't become a great meditator just by reading about it. We're really, we are only working with our own minds. And so the meditation that works is the meditation that works for your mind. And if it's helping you become more peaceful, if it's helping you sort of expand your horizons, if it is helping you, you know, control anxiety, that is the right meditation for you. That is, that is great advice. And I think that uh, also having that permission slip of just knowing if this doesn't fit, it's okay to move and try something else. Because I think a lot of people will treat meditation advice like shoes. And it's like, if you put the wrong pair of shoes on and it doesn't fit, your feet are going to hurt. It's not going to help you run faster or stand longer. You're going to have to try and find a new pair of shoes that fits better and makes that possible. <laughs> yeah. And, and another important point there is the meditation that fits today might not be the meditation that fits three weeks from now. Like you could be in a totally different situation and need an entirely different kind of meditation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So since we are coming up on time, I wanted to just check in and see like, is there anything about today's topic that we didn't cover that you think you need to know this if you're going to dive in. <laughs> no, I think I think we hit all the really important points, especially like some of the pitfalls that people can fall into. But, you know, I think it's just a matter of, of people not being afraid to try. And, and also like just, it's one of those things that the, the deeper you get into it, sometimes it's harder to stick with because we have that resistance to change. But sticking with it is really where the benefits come in, that you can really start to see the, the massive shifts in, in our ability to change, in our ability to be flexible, in our ability to be calmer, the, the things that just make us better humans. Definitely. And if someone wanted to learn more about you and the work that you do, how can they find you? So I just shifted my business recently and I'm rebuilding my website, which is carryham.com, C-A-R-R-I-E-H-A-M-M. -M. I'm hanging out a lot on Clubhouse lately, really loving like the ability to have like on the fly conversations like this and my am at carryham on Clubhouse and, uh, and I have an Instagram account called the alchemy channel. So that's out there where I do some videos, but like, I'm really into the side of my business right now where I am very interested in writing a book and I'm very interested in this demystifying mysticism concept and sort of putting that out in the world and socializing it. So totally welcome feedback from people, questions from people of like the things that are really confusing them, or they don't understand why people are doing this. You know, what is law of attraction? What is all this stuff about to kind of give them the roots behind it? Um, historically, energetically, so that it's it's more accessible to them. Fantastic. And all of Carrie's links will be in the show notes for this episode. So, uh, you know, if you didn't catch that or want to make sure you don't have any typos, they will be there for you to click on. So Carrie, thank you so, so much for joining me today. This has been such an enlightening conversation. Thank you, Blake. I've appreciated it so much. I really enjoyed it as well.
All right, awesome. Well, I've got a uh, floor gremlin, also known as my dog Walker, <laughs> who has been headbutting my chair to try and get me to get off of Zoom. So yeah, we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode. Thank you again. And as mentioned, all of your links will be in the show notes for this episode. And that is it. You are armed with some new info, so go out there and conquer. The ball is in your court, and we're here to cheer you on. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with your friends and tag us on social media at self-improvement. While you're at it, check out our guests at the link in the show notes. You can find more great content like this over at selfimprovement.com. That's www.selfimprovement.com. If you're interested in being a guest on our podcast or want to share some feedback, you can also contact us through our website. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be chatting with you again real soon.